Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today and I'm here with my producer slash editor person, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal and Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going? How's the last fortnight been? It's been it's been a good 2 weeks. I feel like I've been in a in a decent mood and something very exciting for me, something I've been waiting for all year, well in fact, 2 years is it Sydney Film Festival at the moment, which is like the best 2 weeks where there's just all these films playing and you get to get to go see them and it's in person. It's nice to be back at the theater was it on last year like did it just no, get cancelled altogether? Yeah. yeah so it wasn't on last year but here we are and i'm seeing 10 films over the two <laughs> weeks i've already seen five which has been great fun uh and i took you to one as mm-hmm. well that mm-hmm. that you, we all enjoyed um bergman island so it's very good one thing I did want to mention is uh, one of the films I saw, a film that I was really excited to see, was uh, Titane, which I was very surprised to see a bunch of news stories about the next day. <laughs> because apparently 13 people fainted during the film at the screening I was at, yeah. which I didn't notice, probably mostly because I was near the front. But apparently 13 people fainted in the film because it was so violent uh, and shocking, which is fair. It's like particularly very very shocking i would if you can handle it which it seems a lot of people (laughs) can't handle it but it's worth seeing in the cinema just to hear the collective gasps of the audience yeah every five minutes and just uncomfortable laughter because people don't really know how to deal with uh what they're seeing on screen but i did just want to mention it now because i sort of want to counter all of these stories a bit because i feel like i rarely i guess do you see an art house film like this spread in the media like it has so i'm glad that it's getting some attention but i just do find it a little bit frustrating how films like this will often be reduced to how wacky and crazy they are like isn't it insane that there's a wacky, fucked up French movie playing at the Sydney Film Festival that's making people yeah, faint? Yeah, it's so fucking weird It's so gross. weird. But I, I don't know. I just want to counter that even just with films in general, but specifically this film, because Titane is one of the sort of most strangely beautiful films I've seen in a long time. I, I don't even know if I can really in good faith recommend it because I don't want to be responsible uh, for that. <laughs> Look, but. yeah, don't watch it if you're squeamish. It's pretty fucked. But like it can be kind of fucked to watch and also be doing something interesting and beautiful. They're not mutually exclusive. Anyways, how was your fortnight? Um, mine was all right. I honestly, like, even prepping for this podcast, I just, like, could not remember a single thing that I've done in, like, the last two weeks because I think I've just mostly been in my usual routine of work. But I just realized we did have a party. Yeah. I think it was because it was, like, almost two weeks ago now. So it feels like ages ago. I had a little Halloween party at my new apartment, which is so exciting because I feel like, you know, obviously I moved in when lockdown started, like, four months ago, five months ago now, actually. Um, And I just like haven't really had guests. And you guys know we've kind of been recording this alone in this apartment. And I mean, I've talked about it on the podcast already. 
And it was so nice to like have friends over and see people. And actually every day in the last week, I saw somebody. Like I made plans with somebody every single day for a week, like before work, after work, whatever. Like it was really good. It's just really good to get back out there. And I feel like I'm kind of battling my post-lockdown anxiety about being outside. Like Mitch and I went to the city for the first time in like five or six months. Yeah, really Um, making up for the lockdown malaise. Yeah, and like going out and doing stuff and really kind of making the effort to not be like languishing in my apartment. And it's been really good. So actually like, you know what? It has been a good couple of weeks. I'm glad. Um, And it's also exciting because I finally have a start date for my daytime, moving into daytime role with pedestrian, which I like mentioned on the podcast, I think in August (laughs) and then never followed up with. So yes, I, it is still happening. Instagram lives will still be coming back probably in about a month now. Which is exciting. I mean, I'm keen to move into a 9 to 5 instead of a 2.30 to 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. kind of role. I'm keen to get my sleep schedule back together and maybe have a better routine. But yeah, it's, it's, been a good, it's been a good couple of weeks. Anyway, let's get into some follow-up for today, which there kind of isn't any <laughs> from the last episode. I feel like I don't recall anybody asking for specific things for us to talk about. But I had a couple of news stories I wanted to mention anyway, just because I didn't want to do an episode on them. But like I did want to mention them. And the first one was the climate summit happening. COP26, COP26, what do we call it? I never actually said it out loud, I'm realizing now. Mm, We can decide. I don't want to say COP26. Yeah, COP. It's COP26. Someone's going to correct us like immediately after listening to this and tell us it's COP26, but whatever. (laughs) But yeah, I wanted to mention it because like, obviously I've been following it a little bit just through my job at Pedestrian. And it's just so like fucking futile to me. Like, this doesn't feel like a climate summit. It just feels like a bunch of world leaders hopping on their fucking private jets, which just completely, like, it's so anti what this is about, arriving at this summit and then just, like, having a dick measuring contest with each other. It's just, like, so embarrassing. And I feel like reading about it and watching videos, and, like, especially with Scott Morrison just being, like, a fucking awful, slimy gremlin. Like, it's just, like, (laughs) it's... What is happening? This Is this about the climate? Like, or is this just, I mean, I don't know if you guys have read a bunch of articles or anything on it, but Scott Morrison, like, first of all, immediately started beefing with French President Emmanuel Macron. And I don't know whose side I'm on because I hate them both. But like- It's just very amusing. It's just, I guess it's amusing to see all these like awful world leaders fight, but he immediately started beefing with the French president and then like- was doing a speech and in a Freudian slip said that we need to tackle China- instead of we need to tackle climate change. Mm. Like he actually said that and then he went viral in China because everybody was like, wow, this guy is literally obsessed with taking us down. And it's just, it's so embarrassing. Like I have not read a single story from this fucking summit where I feel like something is actually being productive. It's just a bunch of stories of politicians doing stupid shit and I'm over it. We need a revolution now because clearly these people don't know what they're doing. I think it's for the best that this whole thing is just a complete farce. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think it's good that people can see that these people aren't going to be the ones to to revolutionize and, and change and improve the world in like a, any substantial way. It's also just bizarre watching Australian leaders talk about how like we're doing great things and we're at the forefront of climate action. And it's like everybody else hates us. <laughs> everybody else, all the other world leaders fucking hate Australia because we refuse to get our emissions down. It's so delusional. It's so delusional that all these leaders, especially Scott Morrison, are just like adamantly telling us, the Australian public, that we're doing great things. We're ahead 
of the curve. And it's like, what? we were ranked last in climate action in a recent report. Like, where is this information coming from? It's truly embarrassing. The other thing that I wanted to bring up was all this Travis Scott stuff. So I'm sure you guys have read stories now of the really, really fucking tragic Astroworld disaster where at a Travis Scott festival festival concert, eight people died and like dozens more were injured in a crowd crush. So essentially there was like a crowd surge and people... Yeah, I guess we're like trampled and asphyxiated and it's really fucking like it's horrific. It's horrific news made obviously worldwide headlines, still making headlines now because there is, first of all, a lot of rage from the loved ones of the people that died at the festival who are just like, somebody needs to be held accountable for this. How the fuck does this happen? A lot of anger and hate directed towards Travis Scott, obviously, because it was his concert And because of conflicting information about whether or not he continued the concert while knowing that people were dying, like there's a lot of anger because the concert didn't stop for like another 40 minutes, but like dead bodies were being carried out of the crowd. Like it's, yeah, I don't even know what to think, to be honest, but obviously there's a lot of public backlash and commentary being generated. And I kind of wanted to bring it up because of something Mitch was saying to me before about how like, this is an example of capitalism in action and how like it's not like because there's obviously reports of like needle pricking and like drugs and that's what caused this and it's like there isn't an individual person that caused this this is a symptom of a really rushed and disorganized concert that was this rushed and disorganized because of money and profits and capitalism yeah look i don't think there's enough information out now to really make any definitive claims and maybe in the next episode if if there's more information we can have a a more fully formed opinion on this uh but that's part of the the problem everyone wants immediately someone to blame and who is taking that blame is changing is it is it travis scott or is he not that implicated is it the managers is it this mysterious criminal drugging security guards etc but perhaps it's just capitalism and uh, a concert or a festival that cut too many corners and all of these sort of facets of ineptitude compounded to create this tragedy but no individual person is to blame it's a systemic issue yeah and like people don't want to hear that it's a systemic issue because how do you get fucking justice when the person at fault is a system which i completely sympathize with i totally understand like especially for the families like you know what you should not have to worry about your kid dying at a fucking concert Like, two of the people that passed away at this concert were 14 and 16-year-old teenagers. And I get it. Their parents want justice. Their loved ones want justice. I want justice. Like, it was really upsetting reading about what happened. But I think, yeah, it's one of those things where, like, is it the people that were, like, undertrained? Is it their fault? Like, I I know, like, we're reading reports of, like, medical staff just panicking and having no idea on what to fucking do in this scenario. And it's like, is it their fault? Is it the manager's fault for not trading them up? Is it the boss of that manager's fault for not making sure these boxes were checked? Like, you know what I mean? There's just a lot of, there's a lot of things that went wrong. There's a lot of things that contributed to this going wrong. And if anything, I think this is just a really fucking tragic and unfortunate example of, yeah, just how like how businesses and money functions under capitalism and how it will always lead to harm and like exploitation because of the corners that are going to be cut. Yeah, perhaps in a few weeks, uh, news will come out that will show that there is a singular person and one person's negligence that is to blame, but I really don't think so. Anyway, let's get into the topic for today. 
Today, we are going to be talking about the politics of safe spaces. Who are they really for? What does that even mean? How would you define a safe space? And are they kind of inherently exclusionary or are they inevitably going to lead to drama and toxic situations? We're going to be talking about Facebook groups, which I think will pique the interest of a lot of you that have found me in Facebook groups and fandoms. We're going to be talking about campus culture, identity politics, because really all of these inherently kind of relate back to safe spaces. So let's get into it. Today's episode was sparked by discussions I've been having for months now with like Instagram followers, friends, etc. about Facebook groups. Because a lot of you probably found me through one. There was the Shameless Podcast group, the OG Facebook group, circa 2019 to 2020. Maybe not even 2020. I actually can't even remember when that shut down. There was the Abby Chatfield's It's A Lot podcast group. There was the Bobo and Flex podcast group. All of these groups are now defunct. They are all dead. They all devolved into really toxic, really racist slash other problematic politics. Really, 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 really quickly. It was very fucked. Um, oh, man, this has taken me back. This is taking you this back, is, right? Yeah, back is- in the day. This is. I put this on my Instagram story. So, for, I mean, today, but you guys will hear this tomorrow. But this is definitely a bit of a throwback episode for those of you that knew me during then, which a lot of you actually, I realize, probably didn't know me. Well, there is like a portion of our listeners that have known me for a couple of years now and that have found us through groups like the Shameless Facebook group. And we're finally discussing it because I feel like I've wanted to talk about the way those Facebook groups devolved for like ages and we've kind of just not gotten into it. So today is the day. So if you like kind of were around, you already know all the drama, but I'll give just like a little bit of a TLDR for those of you that weren't. So the Shameless Podcast, a lot of you probably know of the Shameless Podcast. It's massive. It's huge. Um, They have like freaking thousands and thousands of listeners. They're like the biggest woman-led podcast in Australia. But back in the day, they used to have a Facebook group where a lot of people just like discussed episodes, shared in interesting article links, like talked and stuff. They, I think when they started the group, it had like roughly 13,000 people which sounds like a lot, but was small. It ended up, by the time they shut the group down, it was like 40-something, like 45,000 people in the group. Like, it was huge. But what essentially happened is, obviously, the Shameless podcast, the two hosts, Sarah and Michelle, are two white women, two white Australian women, and a significant portion of their listenership is also kind of young white women. Like, that is kind of the audience. So, inevitably, the group had lots of white women in it. And the amount of, like, women of colour... Because the group was mostly women, actually. There were some men in there and people who didn't identify as either men or women, but it was mostly cis women. I think I was in there, but just to see your posts. You only were in there so you could, like, like my comments. Yeah. (laughs) And just be on the tee so I could be like, did you see that post? But, yeah, look... So initially it was pretty fun. I often shared in a lot of the articles I wrote in there. It was really good for exposure and like starting interesting conversations. But as I think was probably inevitable with a group that was largely made of cis white upper class women is that things started to get a bit problematic. People started to be casually racist. People would air their problematic opinions. There would be like quote unquote debates, but like not really debates because these people aren't really interested in actually adjusting their political opinion. And it always kind of fell onto the people of color in the group to like challenge a lot of the racism that inevitably arose by having so many white people in one space, which is very emotionally exhausting. All the time it was like you'd be scrolling and then you would see a comment and you're like, oh, I feel the 
responsibility as like one of the few people of color in this group to correct that comment because it's racist. And I doubt that person even realizes they're being racist. A lot of the time they don't. They're just existing and they are racist because white people are generally just pretty racist, whether they know it or not. And that was like something that kind of got worse and worse because it got to the point where people of color in the group were just constantly like exhibiting so much emotional labor at all times, educating everybody for free, which is not fun and not fair. And then on top of that, people were like really entitled to your labor and would expect you to explain everything to them like they were five, even though you have your own life. And honestly, it's not your fucking business to sit here and teach grown ass women how to behave. (laughs) Well, yeah, well, it's, I think it's, it's interesting that you brought up emotional labor because I think it was in these experiences that a lot of people found a consciousness of emotional mm. labor because it was sort of became so visible in yes. this form. Well, exactly, because me, along with many other people in the group, were constantly talking about it because then like somebody would say something racist and you'd be like, that's fucking racist. And they would be like, explain it to me. Explain why it's like why it's problematic. And it's like, read a fucking book, Jan. Like, I'm not going to sit here and explain years of systemic racism to you. And I used to though. Like initially I really did in really good faith, like would get down to people's level and explain to them why this is not okay. But I mean, that's part of why we have the podcast now. Although it's so much better now because nobody's fucking yelling at me at the dining table <laughs> and being like, well, wh- explain that. Mo- why? You know, whereas back then it's different because it's more of a dialogue, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I could argue that the podcast is a safe space for us to have these discussions because mm. nobody is attacking me. Mm. But in the Facebook group for something that was like meant to be a fun group where we all talked about really interesting things and we're all women and that should unite us and it should be, dare I say, a safe space for women to have interesting conversations about pop culture is not really what it felt like for me because I inevitably was always talking about racism, always. And it got to the point where I was getting really fucking upset and bitter and disillusioned because it's like, I can't log on for five fucking seconds without one of you saying something racist. And of course I have to call it out because who else is going to? And I can't let you just be racist. I don't have that in me. I have to say something. It's like a moral responsibility. And it was just, yeah, the emotional labor. I think the term emotional labor really gained a lot of traction in the consciousness of like online Australian women during that time because then me and a bunch of other people would just be like, hey, this is requiring a lot of emotional labor from me without any payoff. I don't really want to have this discussion with you. And like us putting up boundaries. And then these white women accusing us of like, well, how can you say that you care about this issue if you're not going to teach us anything? Don't call me out for racism if you're not going to explain it. Like this is, you know, it was just a really toxic environment that got inevitably like worse and worse and worse and worse. And I feel like I've already talked about enough, but It's pretty bad. It got pretty fucking bad. It was extremely white supremacist. Michelle and Zara, who obviously also have jobs and do things outside of the group, were having to boot people like all the fucking time, constantly getting tagged, being like, hey, this person's being racist, boot them. It's just a lot. It was a lot for everybody. And they eventually chose to shut the group down because they just got to the point where they didn't have the capacity to moderate so many people. And also they were getting complaints every day from people of color in the group being like, this person is being racist to me do something about it and they were just like yeah we're just gonna shut this group down because this is this is fucked and we don't have time for this and the same thing happened to abby's it's a lot podcast group because a lot of the people from shameless migrated there and i would say that her group was more progressive than the shameless group because that one was pretty fucking racist and white supremacist like bizarrely so abby's group i would say was far more progressive which makes sense because abby as a person is a lot more opinionated than maybe the shameless girls are and she's a lot more willing to kind of 
fight you <laughs> which is good in a way because you know the people who would likely be called out by her just didn't join her podcast group it was i think a better environment initially but then that one felt shit too as well because of microaggressions against people of color like just like so many comments calling people of color aggressive or mean or bullies which was an issue in shameless as well for like correcting racism and then she ended up shutting that group down too because shit was getting out of hand and then there's the Bobo and Flex podcast group, which was a very different environment because Bobo and Flex are both black women. So it's a Facebook group by black women. And interestingly, they weren't interested in moderating and they made that very clear from the get-go. Like this is an open group. You can you can just join. There's no application process. And if you don't like somebody block them, you won't see their posts, which was a very interesting model that I think kind of worked initially when the group was like small and then it started to get big and then it also got really fucked, even though it wasn't the same way as Shameless and Abby, because these groups had predominantly black and brown women in them, but it still had in groups and out groups and there were still expectations of emotional labor and there were still lots of racism and like transphobia, especially in the Bobo and Flex group, a lot of transphobia that led to like, interestingly, Bobo and Flex shutting it down, although they never said they shut it down for those reasons. They were just like, haha, this was a social experiment. We're shutting the group down now, which like I imagine was partially true. But I also think it's not a coincidence that they pulled the plug when shit hit the fan in the group. But the reason I've given you that recap is because the devolution of Facebook groups has been something that's fascinated me for quite some time, given I've been in like pretty much every Facebook group I've ever been in has reached that point. And that's kind of led us to our conversation today, because I've been in too many Facebook groups that have fallen apart. And what I find really interesting about the way they've fallen apart is how the term safe spaces has always been very integral to these groups. These groups have always started off as a quote unquote safe space for a certain group of people. And I think that is inherent to their decline. Which is interesting because I feel like conversations and and criticisms of, of safe spaces often come from a very conservative point of view it, it it's all of these reactionary people who are like you know these leftists with their, their safe spaces don't want to approach snowflakes. the real world yeah these snowflakes but i hope we offer a different perspective today yeah because i think we want to be critical of safe spaces and the way they function but we're not necessarily against people having a space that they feel comfortable in yeah. but what we'll be talking about is what does that mean what does it mean to be like comfortable in a safe space and I guess is a safe space inherently exclusionary to some because what we rarely talk about and what I think was only just starting to be talked about in these Facebook groups when they when the plug was pulled is that like a safe space for one person is inherently going to be unsafe for another people because people have conflicting interests, right? Inevitably, there are going to be conflicting interests between what is comfortable for one person and uncomfortable for another person. And who gets to talk about what and whose safety and comfort is more important than others? Most of the time, white people's, which is what we see a lot in Facebook groups and in any safe space as well, which I think let's get into maybe some examples of that kind of coming up. Yeah. So one way I really wanted to sort of structure this episode around safe spaces is by sort of reflecting on an article I found while researching this. And I found a really interesting article uh, by Catherine Fox called From Transaction to Transformation, Encountering White Heteronormativity in Safe Spaces. And one reason I want to focus on this article is because it came out in 2007 and specifically talks about LGBTQI plus safe spaces on college campuses, because that's actually what I really like to do when trying to encounter a sort of a theoretical topic. 
safe spaces, I think as we know them nowadays, often unfold uh, in social media, in online space, and it can actually make it far more complicated and confusing to really get a grasp. So I think it's often best to go back to look at earlier incarnations of these things, and then we can see how they're similar and in some ways they're different. So that's what I really want to want to focus on. And I think Catherine Fox brings up some really amazing points that I think will be very useful in seeing the similarities and differences to safe spaces today. So written in 2007, Fox discusses the emergence of safe spaces on university campuses and specifically safe space stickers that would be put on classrooms or or office spaces to indicate that a certain space or a certain person could facilitate a safe space. And Fox discusses how one of these safe spaces that she was involved in, I think as a PhD student, is an LGBT space. And I think the students were trying to organize a, a queer conference where all of these different people could come together from, from different faculties and different universities and talk about this experience in a safe space. But I guess, unsurprisingly, Fox began to notice a lot of microaggressions occurring. So she would constantly notice white students consistently talking over POC students or or students of color would constantly be expected to do the quote unquote cultural work. So they were expected to to bring, I guess, the culture to it or talk to other people of color. And that's really interesting because in like a couple of sentences, you've summarized exactly what was happening in the Shameless group where it started off as like a safe space for women to discuss pop culture and the news in a way that wasn't judgy because like the shameless podcast you know the tagline is smart women who love dumb stuff like it's you can talk about anything you can bring an intellectual lens to even the most you know silly topic and we'll take you seriously and we'll meet you on your level that's what the point of the group was but inherently it got to a point where white women were talking over women of color when people of color were like bringing up a pop culture thing and being like hey this is actually racist or hey this I didn't like that part of that show because it, you know, the stereotype, et cetera. It was white women being like, well, no, but I liked it. And my opinion is more important because I'm white. Well, they didn't say that, but you know, that was the implication. Yeah. The same thing arose. And what I wanted to point out just really quickly is when you said it was like the onus on students of color to like, first of all, A, bring their culture to the group or bring an expertise of culture onto the group and then B, network with each other which is exactly what was happening in the Shames group. We, like, I had somehow become friends with all of the POC in this group, even though there were like 20 of us. Out of, like, four, we found each other instantly. And then we have like a responsibility together to defend ourselves and each other and our culture and our race and to like educate others immediately, unspokenly. Yeah, which, I mean, so interesting. This is written 15 years earlier and yet we see the exact same things unfolding. And I'd like to just quote Fox at length. She says, quote, Believing that race, class, and gender are not LGBT issues, some felt that safe space was a space where they could be comfortable to say and do whatever they wanted to, quote, just be gay. And they felt that their safe space was being infringed upon by students who brought discussions of race and gender to the table. And again, this is exactly what we saw in so many of these groups. These groups were centered on being a safe space for a singular identity. For women. For women, for example. And I think it just goes to show that so many of these safe spaces, by the fact of them being a safe space for women, for example, it's very difficult for them to be intersectional, to think about how identities can be built upon a series of intersecting reciprocal identities that take into account class, race, gender, 
accumulatively. Yeah, because interestingly, when you're like, for example, with that LGBT group and like white gay students wanting to talk about how they just want to be gay in this safe space and they don't want to listen to you talk about racism because that's not relevant. When like gay people of color exist and also what it doesn't account for is that like, let's use an example of white gay men are very capable of, you know, being racist or misogynistic towards people of color. And it's like there is still a power hierarchy, a power imbalance. And like a white gay person can want a safe space to be queer comfortably, but like inherently they'll probably enact violence on like other marginalized identities because it's all intersecting and there's lateral violence too. Exactly. I mean, the article even points out when students of color wanted to talk about race, they'd be sent to, you know, like, I'll go to that other group then. Or if, if women wanted to talk about their experiences, they go, to, go, the women's to, go to the women's collective because this is the gay group. But what they're actually saying is that this is the group in for this example, for, for white gay men yeah because whenever you have a group just for women or just for a certain identity there becomes a sort of a normative figure that the group coalesces around and also i mean i think something really interesting that just occurred to me is like this actually relates back to our um episode on like racialized gender or gendered race because inherently femininity is racialized right when we think of a safe space for women there's a reason we inherently think of a safe space for white women. It's because women are white and white are women and women of color are not women. They're women of color and there's a difference. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, if you want to learn more about that, you can listen to our episode. I think it's called Who Gets to Be Athletes, Not Black Women. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. But we have an episode earlier where we discuss like the inherent racialized elements of gender and how like the word woman has historically been actually exclusive to just white women and people who aren't white women aren't women. You know, there's this issue of identity where like you can only be just gay or just a woman or just a person of color. There's no intersections involved. And that means that kind of these safe spaces are only quote unquote safe for a very small amount of people. But the problem with that is those that aren't included in the identity. So for example, women of color in a women's only space, even though they are women, they inherently make the space unsafe for white women because white women feel challenged or threatened by them. You know, that's something we saw a lot in Shameless where like I would call a white woman out on being racist. And this is a group for all women, all women, but I would immediately get accused of being aggressive or a bully and making this an unsafe space. By challenging a white woman on her racism, I have now made this group unsafe for her and all other white women. Which is an interesting because I would think, do you deserve to have a safe space for your racism? Who is this safe space for? Because I would argue that like, it should be a safe space for me, not for you. And we're both women. But is it a safe space if you're allowed to be racist freely? And then in that case, should we even fucking have safe spaces, right? Does everywhere need to be a safe space? And I think that's an interesting and maybe counterintuitive question to ask because it feels wrong to say, should some spaces not be safe spaces? Because, I mean, of course, yeah, all like spaces a, should be a safe space. Yeah, like we don't want to make places unsafe for people. But perhaps a safe space is more than just a not unsafe place. Yeah, well, perhaps there's more to safe spaces than just feeling comfortable. Are safe spaces about being comfortable or are they about 
being able to exhibit certain ideas without fear? Like what, what does a safe space mean, I guess, then? So I think an example that really, to me, illuminated the difference, referring back to, to the Fox article uh, in a sort of a more analog, antiquated fashion. She talks about how, as a PhD student, a faculty-wide email was sent to, I think, the whole English department saying that in the office, you can pick up safe space stickers and you're encouraged to, to put them up if you want to be involved in that. So you're encouraged to, to pop them on your desk or put them in your classroom to indicate to everyone that talking to you or this space is a safe space for, in this case, typically, specifically queer, queer LGBTQI plus people. And what Fox points out is how this concerned her. Everyone else was sort of excited about this, but she was concerned because it, you didn't require any education or any dialogue to get these stickers. Whereas beforehand, you had to do at least a, a one to three hour course before you could say that you could facilitate a safe space. So when it became so easy to access these safe space symbols, essentially what happened was that if you didn't have a safe space sticker on your classroom or your desk, you were outing yourself as not being uh, an ally for the LGBT. Yes, plus and I people. find that so fascinating because we saw that again play out real time with the Shameless thing because after like Shameless inevitably shut down and then Abby's podcast group shut down, all these podcast groups were getting shut down, a bunch of women decided, you know what? Like the issue here is obviously that these spaces are pretty like racist and problematic. Let's start our own Facebook group and we'll make it much better, right? And but they so they instantly go, they start a new Facebook group called So You Want to Talk About Intersectional Feminism, which is largely initially run and thought of by white women who are from these groups. And it was to me like I didn't join it and I wasn't interested in it because like this is just a symbol. You don't know anything about intersectional feminism. I know you people. Like, I've seen you fucking commenting in these groups. You are not an expert on this topic. So you've picked up a symbol, a.k.a. this quote. So you want to talk about intersectional They made, like, a cute little, like, graphic for the, like, you know, feature image of the group or whatever, which I think is, like, the modern-day equivalent of having the safe space sticker and sticking it on yeah, the group. Exactly. It's the modern equivalent. And they did that, and they just, like, think that that's what makes it a safe space when it doesn't, and you don't you actually don't have the capacity to run a safe space because you don't understand these issues and you don't understand the plight of a lot of people of color and you don't understand the difference between identity, like actual identity politics and weaponized identity politics. And you, do, you don't really, you just don't know. You just don't have the capacity to do this. So it's actually kind of problematic because now everyone just thinks by having the symbol, they have a safe space, but really it's kind of more harmful. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting to think about because controlling and operating a safe space actually requires a lot of effort, knowledge, and education. And in fact, not everyone is capable of operating a safe space that is actually safe. And that's actually okay. Not everywhere has to be a safe space. And I think that's part of the issue with safe spaces that people have come to think that controlling a safe space or creating one is simply just calling it a safe space and being open-minded because it actually requires a lot of knowledge, introspection, and understanding with a variety of identities. You can't just be a feminist and think that, oh, now I'm going to create a safe space for all women. Yeah. And I think it's really important to kind of hone in the fact that, yeah, not everywhere has to be a safe space and not everybody can actually make one. And I think that's important because- I mean, after Michelle and Zara took down the Shameless group, there were a lot of, like, mixed opinions. Um, there were some people that were like, yeah, about fucking time. Like, this has gone too far. This is becoming a white supremacist group. Hate it. But there were other people of color that were really frustrated by that move because they felt that it was a cop-out. It was like, a, okay, you've built the space. You've gotten what you wanted out of it. 
And now that it's gotten too hard and you're actually required to do some work, you're shutting it down. And I think maybe in the moment I was a lot more sympathetic to that. But over like the last two years, I've changed my mind because I've been thinking about it. And I'm like, how the fuck were they supposed to fix this? (laughs) Like, actually, they just didn't have the capacity to do that. And that's fine. Like, I think it's okay that they didn't have the capacity to do that or the knowledge. Like, Michelle and Zara are two white women and they are not going to have the in-depth knowledge inherently that would have been necessary to make it a safe space for people of color. They just weren't capable as white women of creating a safe space for people of color. And I don't think any white people really can create like this group and and lead it and have it be a safe space for people of color because they just don't understand those experiences. And that's okay. Like I actually now in hindsight think that's fine, especially now that we have a Facebook group. Our Facebook group is tiny. The here's the thing though, podcast, nowhere near the size, obviously, of these other groups. But like, bro, there's like one thread every like two days and half the time I still miss what's going on. I'm not actively there moderating things. I don't need to because it's a small group at the moment. So I don't need to really moderate. But like, I really don't have the capacity to anyway, most of the time, which is why it's a small group and why we keep it small. But I'm just thinking like with Michelle and Zara, who are like obviously work full time outside of this podcast group and are busy and they probably don't want to spend every fucking waking moment running this group. And that's fair. I, I get it. I'm more sympathetic to it now, now that we also have a podcast and a group. But also, I just don't need that from them. They're not the people that I want a a safe space from. I don't think they need to make that for me. And somewhere else, I'd probably go if I wanted a safe space for me. Yeah, exactly. I think what's more dangerous is to call something a safe space that isn't a safe space. Yeah, agree. I think also an interesting part of like, if we should really have safe spaces or what they really mean or how useful they really are is like a discussion on what kind of behavior is a safe space can protect because I have very conflicted feelings about safe spaces, right? Through all these Facebook groups, because a lot of the time people would weaponize their vulnerability in order to shut down legitimate criticism. Like there were times where I would pull up a white woman on racism and then she would be like, well, you pulling me up is really aggressive and bullying. And I'm actually a survivor of like domestic violence or like an abusive relationship and you're actually just triggering me now with your words calling me out um and you've made the space unsafe and it's just like whoa okay one hang on one second like first of all I don't think we can compare somebody calling racism out to a fucking abusive relationship but I think that situation which happened quite often I had seen white women like weaponized sexual assault against women of color that call them out because by you being quote unquote aggressive and pulling them up, you've triggered their PTSD of sexual assault, which is obviously just victimization. Like this is white innocence and white victimization. But this conversation is important because that vulnerability, like sexual assault is obviously a really traumatic thing to happen to somebody. And it is a vulnerability, but it's not a vulnerability that can be used to excuse racism. And a lot of the time, the problem with safe spaces in this current identity politics obsessed era and this like lower L liberal era is that they're weaponized all the time, often against the very people that safe spaces should be created for. Yeah, it seems that a lot of people have constructed safe spaces as being an excuse for avoiding certain conversations than having productive conversations. Yes, exactly. Um, and there was, a again, another article I want to bring up. Uh, it's a little blog post. I'll, I'll link it below. I'd recommend that you read it by a, a queer theorist that I've really been interested in recently called Jack Halberston. It's called You Are Triggering Me, The Neoliberal Rhetoric of Harm, Danger, and Trauma. And I think what he was saying was just so fascinating to me 
because it feels so true. The idea that the ideology and policing of safe spaces actually reflect the rhetoric of neoliberalism. Politics have become so individualized. I'll read you just a, a quote, which I think is interesting. He says, quote, instead of recognizing that neoliberalism precisely goes to work by psychologizing political difference, individualizing structural exclusions and mystifying political change, some recent activists seem to have equated social activism with descriptive statements about individual harm and psychic pain. That sounds like kind of a lot in a quote, but it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about the way that liberals weaponize identity politics in order to silence a lot of radical thought. I've seen some, I mean, in Facebook groups now and back in the day where like an individual will be like, I really disagree with XYZ politics that are probably correct radical politics. And I can say that because I'm a victim of sexual assault and I'm a person of color and I'm queer. Because I have these marginalized identities, I can say that you're wrong and you can't disagree with me because that is unfair and you're hurting me and you are making me unsafe like as a person of a marginalized identity. Which is like interesting because it's kind of the same thing that a lot of white women do, but it's a little bit different because it immediately weaponizes like quite legitimate marginalized identities into a you're triggering me situation, which is fucked because like let's not like use PTSD examples to like win an argument on Facebook or even a political debate in person. Because I see this a lot, even in like Stupol, like uni politics, where people will like go up and talk and like have really problematic opinions and then be like, well, I'm from XYZ, marginalized group. Therefore, I'm right. You're all wrong. And if you disagree, you're actually harming me. And what this focus on this really individualized politics where everything is always sort of a step away from being too difficult to discuss is that it constructs these identities and these identities of marginalized people as being always already sad and always already fragile. Like that's just what it means to be a gay person or a person of color. And as this author points out, like this is extremely problematic because this that isn't all that these identities are. These identities are so full of a wide range of emotions and experiences, but a lot of people like to reduce these experiences to always being, you know, sensitive. Yeah, exactly. Sweet little, these sweet little scent. Oh my God. You see it a lot in like queer conversations about trans people and particularly trans boys, like these precious little trans boys, these little beans, we got to protect them, which like, first of all, is super paternalistic and also kind of transphobic because it immediately feminizes trans men. But anyway, like there's conversations where we treat marginalized identities as these sensitive little babies that we've got to protect because they're always on the verge of a nervous breakdown, which like kind of ties into like triggering politics. And it's, yeah, it's really problematic because like it's fucking paternalistic and also it's reductive. And also it's like racist a lot of the time as well because you see it a lot with black women, for example, and like protect black women and like, yes, but also like you're speaking over them and stepping on them and not letting them actually talk about anything. So no. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really funny uh, what Jack Halberstam brings up in the article, which is back in the day, in the time of Freud, we would talk about how traumas were something that were hidden really deep down inside, like something that you would constantly repress and it would take years of psychoanalysis to uncover a trauma, the original trauma, etc. Whereas nowadays, it's like we all wear our traumas on our sleeve and we're always, you know, one action or one word away from just a complete breakdown. And while for some people and some experiences, that's very true, 
if your political space is centered on that, then there's going to be a lot of important conversations which are just impossible to have. Yeah, exactly. Well, essentially what it does is silence legitimate progressive or important political conversations at the risk of hurting your feelings. And like, that's not okay. And this is when you see a lot of identities be weaponized. And even the word, like, even um, like mental health be weaponized a lot as well, which you see, I've seen personally from a lot of white women is like talking about being like, quote unquote, triggered from a conversation about race because it's, it's triggering them from another PTSD or like abusive situation that they've survived. And it's like, you don't get to opt out of a conversation on racism because you have trauma. That's not okay. And there is a difference. I feel like it's an icky position to be in as a leftist because you're going to have people be like, oh, so you just don't care about people's trauma. Oh, so you're ableist. And it's like, no, I think we should be wary of like supporting people who are struggling with trauma. But I don't think that somebody having trauma makes it okay for them to A, be problematic and B, like ignore conversations that pull them up for being problematic because they just don't want to be challenged. Like trauma doesn't, make you exempt from being challenged on your views I think and I think a lot of people weaponize their trauma or trauma dump in order to like escape that accountability I think this is a space where our opinion has sort of fluctuated and changed a bit in the past few years uh, because I think with trigger warnings for example I really like trigger warnings I think they're a really great thing but I think by engaging with some specifically queer theorists in the past few years and, and hearing their opinions and hearing how a lot of them don't like trigger warnings made me sort of reconsider their function. And I was listening to an interview with Lauren Ballant, which I put in the, the show notes, about how they're a really big fan of trigger warnings and how they're actually in the minority among queer theorists on that topic. However, the role of them isn't to say that this is going to be a difficult conversation, avoid this if this seems difficult to you, because like, of course, a lot of these things are going to be difficult to talk about. But what they are is a warning, as in this conversation is going to be difficult. I'm removing the element of surprise, but you still have to have this conversation. Yeah. Anyways, it's a preemptive, like prepare yourself, but not here's a warning to disengage. Exactly. And I think my opinion has really changed as well, because a couple of years ago, like I was like, yes, trigger warnings on everything. Like whatever you want me to put a trigger warning on, I will because I don't mind being like helpful. I don't mind, you know, uh, making my space as safe as possible. I'm still happy to do that, but I've kind of shifted away from trigger warnings and started to use the word content warning. And I know that might seem like an arbitrary shift, but it's not because I've noticed that when you use the term trigger warning, like trigger warning, this post discusses racism, for example, people will immediately think, oh, I'm not going to engage in that because it'll trigger me. So I'm just not going to engage. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to accept this dialogue. I'm not going to get involved in this discourse. And I think that's harmful because I don't think that we should just ignore everything that makes us uncomfortable. Obviously, it's a different scenario if, for example, you've like survived a sexual assault and you have deep trauma from that. And then people are talking about sexual assault and you don't want to talk. That's fair. That's fucking fine. Like, that's so okay. Yeah, this isn't black and white. It's not black and white. But I think for a lot of the time, and especially more towards conversations around, like, racism or, like, just abuse in general, a lot of people who, like, actually, like, are probably perpetuators of abuse in these safe spaces 
will then like see a trigger warning and be like, well, I'm not going to engage in that. And it's like, but you need to because this post is directed at you and your harmful behavior. And interestingly enough, I feel like the term content warning actually has like totally different meanings to trigger warnings unconsciously. Like they seem interchangeable, but I feel like trigger warning implies don't engage with this if this topic is stressful for you. It will trigger you and you won't be able to deal with it. And content warning implies, hey, this article mentions this thing. Just prepare yourself. It may get a bit rough, but still read it. Still engage with it. And I don't know if other people feel like there is a difference in those terms, but I've really noticed a difference. I've noticed in the way they've been used and especially now working in journalism and how I've noticed that most articles in journalism come with a content warning, not a trigger warning, because they're not designed to stop you from reading the story. They're designed for you to prepare yourself to read the story. And I think that's really, really important because we can't just not have conversations. Yeah. And I think this culture of trigger warnings, for example, really reflects what safe spaces are really about, which is- the right to comfort that I think a lot of safe spaces are about protecting yourself from discomfort, which isn't necessarily the best thing for a safe space to be predicated on. Yeah, exactly. I think a huge problem with safe spaces and why I've become so disillusioned with them is because they're not necessarily a safe space in the sense of this is a safe space to have these discussions. No, what it's saying is this is a safe space for you to comfortably air those thoughts. You deserve to be comfortable. And anybody who threatens your comfort is making this place unsafe, which inherently excludes like people of marginalized identities, right? Like in, for example, Shameless, it's not a safe space for discussion. It's a safe space for white women to say what the fuck they want and be comfortable. And if I make them uncomfortable by calling them out on racism, I've made it an unsafe space because actually this is not a safe space. It's about their comfort. And it's like, then inherently whose comfort is protected because mm. there will always be somebody that has to be uncomfortable in a conversation if it's a debate. Like if there is a discourse, if there is a dialogue of agree, disagree, or if people have two differing opinions and they have a discussion, somebody is always going to feel a little uncomfortable at some point because they're going to be wrong. Like there's always going to be somebody that like is corrected. But if we constantly protect comfort and we don't allow challenging, then what we're going to see time and time again is marginalized people attacked and excluded and branded as bullies and aggressive because they make you uncomfortable with truth, which is what we saw. And when you were talking about earlier regarding the LGBT safe spaces on campus and how like, yeah, people were like, oh, we just want to be gay. Don't take your race politics here. Have your race politics somewhere else because they just want to be comfortable in their ignorance of race. Yeah, exactly. If you have a group that is first and foremost about being comfortable, then you're going to have an inside and an outside group. And then the conversations become more about policing identity, because if you want to have conversations which fall outside of this narrow scope of what a discussion in this group can be, then you're ultimately policing what type of people can be in here and what sort of identities and conversations are acceptable. Yeah. And then when you start to police which kind of conversations are comfortable and which aren't, comfortable and how only comfortable conversations are allowed you obviously really limit the discourse and dialogue you're never going to progress everything is going to stagnate and it just becomes a cesspool of toxicity which is what we saw in shameless for example and what i've seen in like not even fucking these kinds of podcast groups but like any facebook group like literally any facebook group like ones where people show cute pictures of cats like if you ban these conversations which a lot of like meme and like cute like you know 
cute birds and whatnot Facebook groups. I mean, they all have a ban on political conversation, which is like when you ban those conversations, you're obviously comforting like the normative group because they're the only ones that are actually challenged and threatened by these conversations. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just so funny to me to, to ban political conversations because- Oh, you know, it, it's really common. Like, I'm sure. Really common. Yeah, because of course, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you're very well aware that any text, any film book, Everything is political. Has a political slant to it, uh, which is like, great, that's fine. That's how, you know, it it should be. That's how we should be engaging with these things, acknowledging that. However, when no political discussions are allowed, then that just means that whatever the, the foundational or fundamental political slant of whatever you're celebrating in this fandom is going to be the normative hegemonic default state. And you have to either agree with that assimilate with that, have the same point of view as everyone else in this discussion or be cast out for having a, a differing, uncomfortable, divisive you know, sentiment. I'm going to come back to fandoms in a second because I think that is incredibly relevant. Before I get to that, something I want to mention is that, but what if your marginalized identity is inherently political? Because that's what I saw a lot. One of my favorite Facebook groups that I am actually still in is called Frog Spotting. And it's just fucking frog memes and like lizard memes. And like, it's really funny. But what I love about that group is that it's very pro trans and queer and like Black Lives Matter politics, which is fucking rare for all these groups because they all ban politics. But when they say we ban politics, they also say we ban you ever mentioning that you're black, for example, because being black is inherently political. So if you are in the group and you're like, that's fucking racist, you get booted for being political. Because not being white is political, not being straight, like all these identities are seen as political rather than just existing. And so what's interesting that you see in the frog spotting group is like people would post like a funny meme, like a funny pro-trans meme. And everybody would be like, when did this group get political? And it's like, how interesting that you think it's politics when I just exist, which is what we're seeing a lot. Like you think somebody existing as a trans person is making your group political and you didn't opt into a political group because you see these identities as not just existing as identities, but you see them inherently being in your space as a political affront, which is fucking sad and also unfair because then you just can't exist in that space. Being literally any kind of non-whites' identity means you're inherently a political person and you inherently make the space you enter political just by existing visibly. Just by being visible in your identity, you've made this conversation political get out. Which It's fucked. Like, everything is political. You can't have an apolitical space. An apolitical space just means it's white supremacist, really. Exactly. Anyway, bringing this back to fandoms, I think that's very interesting and very relevant because it's something that, like happened in the Harry Potter fandom, which I am happy to say that as much as I loved Harry Potter, I was never deeply embedded into the fandom because that shit was toxic. (laughs) But, you know, circa like 2015 Tumblr or whatever, this was a real issue because obviously JK Rowling is a transphobe quite openly. And also there are a lot of elements to Harry Potter that are racist and transphobic and misogynistic. Like there are problematic things in this text. And a lot of people still like can engage with it and recognize that. Me, for example, Harry Potter is my comfort movie slash book series. And I like enjoy it, but like can also at the same time be extremely critical of the media that I'm consuming. But it's interesting because the Harry Potter fandom like is very adamant on no politics, which is impossible 
when it's a text that's racist and transphobic and the author is openly transphobic and like if you like mentioned that you were a person of color it was immediately seen as a political affront and like you were making everybody else uncomfortable and attacking them and like people of color and particularly trans people obviously having very legitimate criticism of this series without saying they hate it people like harry potter and can talk about it and be like yeah that's pretty fucked that happened like i never thought about that as a kid but that's actually really fucked up and then people would take it as a personal attack and then ostracize you from the group because you're making them uncomfortable and you're not assimilating into the type of conversations that are acceptable in this group, which is kind of like what Mitch just said. But I find coming back to fandoms really interesting because Facebook groups are often actually replaying stuff that I saw happen in Tumblr in like 2013. They're kind of just the modern day versions of fandoms because like fandoms are also about having a relatable community where people unite on a common interest. It's like meant to be wholesome, especially for teenagers during that time. Like obviously, you know, in 2013, I was 15 years old. Like I was in my angsty phase as many teenagers were at the time. They're looking for somebody to connect to that gets them real angsty. So you come to your fandom, which is like part of your personality trait. And you're like, this is my safe space. This is where I belong. This is where I have an authority. This is where, you know, every other part of my life, I might feel left out or like I don't fit in. And like, I'm awkward and I don't know what to do, but not, not the Harry Potter fandom. This is my home. And the problem with that is that what happens when you're in your little Harry Potter fandom home and somebody challenges you in your safe space, because essentially you have made this fandom a safe space for you and other people like you. What happens when you're challenged? Drama. Drama is what happens. Recently, I found just the most amusing quote from the opening two paragraphs from a Roger Ebert review. If you guys don't know who Roger Ebert was, was a very important, popular film critic who passed away a few years ago. And he has a review for the 2009 film Fanboys, which I actually have seen. I think I saw it when I was like 10, rented it from Civic Video. Uh, That doesn't really matter too much, but (laughs) it it wasn't very good. I probably enjoyed it as a 10-year-old. Anyways, so in the opening of the review for the film Fanboys, which is about Star Wars fanboys going on a road trip, he says, quote, a lot of fans are basically fans of fandom itself. It's all about them. They have mastered the Star Wars or Star Trek universes or whatever, but their objects of veneration are useful mainly as a backdrop to their own devotion. Anyone who would camp out in a tent on the sidewalk for weeks in order to be first in line for a movie is more into camping on the sidewalk than movies. (laughs) Extreme fandom may serve as a security blanket for the socially inept who use its extreme structure as a substitute for social skills. If you are Luke Skywalker and she is Princess Leia, you already know what to say to each other, which is so much safer than having to ad-lib it. Your fanish obsession is your beard. If you know absolutely all the trivia about your cubbyhole of pop culture, it saves you from actually having to know anything about anything else. That's why it's excruciatingly boring to talk to such people. They're always asking you questions they already know the answer to. Oh, mind blown. Such a good quote. Such a good quote, I feel. He went, he didn't have to go that hard. (laughs) He really came for them and like left no fucking witnesses. I don't think I've ever really used the word savage, but I think I'll I'll allow an an exception for (laughs) for these two paragraphs. No, but it's so good because it's so true. And it was when you were showing me that quote earlier, it really kind of blew my mind a little bit because it explained like a lot of the issues I have had in these spaces and also like 
actual friendship issues that I've had in real life. Because like I know some people who find fandom to be a home for them. But like then those fandoms are incredibly toxic because these people are looking for a safe space. It's not so much about Harry Potter. It's about having a safe space. And Harry Potter is the vehicle for that safe space. I really liked what he said when he was like, anybody who would camp out in a tent on the sidewalk for weeks in order to be first in line for a movie is more into camping on the sidewalk than movies. Like, exactly. People who are this involved in the fandom community or in the Facebook group don't actually care that much about the fandom or like what the fucking Facebook group is about. They care about the community element. That's what they're attached to. That's what means something for them. Exactly. It's about being in a space where everyone is similarly oriented, where you don't have to deal with the inconvenience of other people. You don't have to deal with the inconvenience of there being a disjunction between your opinion and someone else's opinion. Well, it's more just like with these fandoms and Facebook groups as well. It's like, because it's less about the fandom or like, I don't know, shameless podcast and more about having the community it means that you become really fucking vicious when that's threatened because you have like a sentimental attachment to that group. And you don't care what like, for example, Zara and Michelle have to say because there were many times when Zara and Michelle were like, guys, that's fucking racist. Stop doing that shit. It's racist. And no one listens to them, even though they apparently love the podcast and they're part of this big, this Facebook group is essentially fandom for the podcast, right? It's a fandom community. But it's like, this isn't really about Shameless. This is about you having a space. You have found a space that you can occupy and not just occupy, but be an authority on and dominate. And you're threatened by losing that security blanket of having control, right? Because a safe space cannot be safe for everybody. Inherently, what is safe for some is exclusionary to others, right? And I've noticed that certain subtypes of individuals that feel marginalized or isolated in real life, like cling to these fandoms for all their fucking worth, right? This is their safe space to unapologetically indulge in their interests without shame. And like, that's especially important when you don't feel like you really get to do that in real life or where you feel isolated in real life. Um... You know, what if you're an individual who feels like an underdog in real life and then has latched onto Harry Potter as your safe space? And now people are coming out into your safe space and they're calling it transphobic and they're calling it racist and they're calling it imperialistic and they're they're tearing it apart. What then? It leads to like this this lashing out, right? This like upset, this like we need to exclude these certain folk that are ruining this safe space. They're ruining my safe space. And often that means we're excluding racial minorities and people who are part of the LGBT community because they're the ones that are often calling this stuff out. And so back to that excerpt, I think it's really true that certain individuals use fandom as a toxic safe space to assert an element of control that they don't have in real life and that otherwise would make them very uncomfortable and I actually have like a really personal example to this that I kind of was like really the thoughts were just ignited listening to this quote I had a friend from high school who I'm no longer friends with who would often corner me into conversations about like extremely niche and specific fandom or media that I that I don't know anything about and that I have no interest in like I don't know what this show is or book is or whatever I've never listened to it I've never watched it I don't know what this is but like they would always push me into conversations about it and refuse any attempts from me to push the conversation elsewhere. And it was really frustrating. It was so annoying. It was like, I don't want to fucking talk about this thing that I don't know anything about. Why do we only ever talk about this interest of yours that I could not give like any less fucks about, right? But the thing is, this was an attempt at a conversation that was like strictly controlled. The reason they were doing this was because if you talk to me, 
inevitably we're gonna end up talking about racism and misogyny at some point because I'm a woman and I'm brown (laughs) like and I live in Australia so it's gonna come up like conversations around race and gender are going to come up with me but this friend was white and often pretty casually racist and had some really problematic ideas about gender-based violence so inherently I think they kind of understood maybe not on a super conscious level but there was an understanding there that like I'm gonna challenge them at some point we are going to have an uncomfortable interaction because we inherently disagree on values that are really, really important to me. But they didn't want to lose my friendship. So their way of maintaining control over this conversation was by pushing me into only ever talking about fandom with them because they could talk to me in a way where they could ensure that I never say anything that makes them uncomfortable. I never say anything that makes them, that forces them to critically think, that calls them out. I can't make this space unsafe for them because I don't know what the fuck we're talking about. It was like a real latch onto control. And it was inherently, I'm realizing now, like after all these discussions, like we've ended that friendship because I just couldn't fucking take it anymore. But now I think back and I'm like, oh, I see what you were doing. Like this wasn't just about some ridiculous obsession. Like this was about a need for control of a safe space and about feeling threatened. That's what this was about. Well, it's like what Ebert says, why it's so excruciating to talk to such people because- They're asking questions they already know the answers to. Yeah. So you can never catch them by surprise. You can never challenge them. You can never actually have a fucking interesting conversation because they won't let you. They won't let you because they need to maintain their safe space, even if it's at the detriment of actually having an interesting interaction. So what do we do with safe spaces? What's What's the answer? What's the answer? How should we think of them? Because clearly safe spaces are overrun with so many issues, fundamentally, theoretically, at their base. But we also need spaces that we can talk about these things openly and spaces that are differentiated from our world. That is really quite hostile. Yeah, I think we kind of need to make a point here where it's like we've obviously just fucking ripped apart all these like contemporary examples of safe spaces. But that doesn't mean that we don't think there should be spaces that exist that are less hostile to certain groups of people. Like we believe they should exist, but maybe not in the way they currently do. Exactly. Because going back to the Catherine Fox article, which we started this conversation with, she points out how the idea of safe spaces constructs a binary between safe and unsafe spaces, which I know that seems obvious, but what this can actually do is it can easily be problematic because when you have like this binary between in here is safe, out there is hostile, then the safety of that space needs to be preserved at any cost. It needs to be always already safe and can really leave no room for disjunction or disagreement. Yeah, well, the problem is things are binary if either safe or toxic. Yeah. Either it's safe or you're a toxic bully. Exactly. And there's no in between. There's no understanding of like healthy, uncomfortable conversations. Instead, and I think this is a really good idea... We should think of safe spaces as being safer spaces with the R in parentheses. And this R, this extra added R, highlights how these spaces should be transformational. They're an ongoing project while acknowledging that no space is ever completely safe. Here's a quote from the article. Quote, transformation calls us to conceive of spaces that can never be completely or finally safe in a sense of being free from struggle or discomfort. She continues, We must engage safety as a process through which we establish dialogues that create and recreate the conditions in which queer folks are more free from the physical and psychic violence of those normalizing processes through which we all move through and operate in our everyday or quotidian experiences. 
Exactly. And I really like that idea as well of like, we can try and have safe spaces, quote unquote, but called safer spaces because it's about transformation. It's about the learning process. It's like, yes, you can make mistakes in this group, but also expect to be pulled up. You know what I mean? Like it's more about the process than the end goal. And I think that's really important with safe space because we're never going to have a fully safe space for anybody. There's no such thing as like a 100% safe space because everybody is always going to have opinions that are wrong or problematic or hurtful to others. And it's inherent. And a space that is always already safe is a space without politics because politics originates in a disagreement of sorts. Yeah. Politics, in a transformation. Politics are always about some kind of uncomfy conversation like politics are necessary to fight oppression and they are rooted in oppression without oppression there's no politics so i think we can't have apolitical spaces or we can't have spaces that are like only for this one particular identity because first of all identities overlap and second of all politics are necessary and everything is political so by just saying apolitical you're actually already creating an unsafe space so i guess to wrap it all up to wrap it all up like the point of this podcast is not to say fuck safe spaces, although I sometimes do feel that way. The point is to say we need to be thinking about safe spaces differently. We need to think about them less as like a kind of everything is safe, everything is perfect, be all end or black and white scenario. And moreover, these are certain spaces we've created to foster discussions where we go in with knowledge of what will be talked about or like we go in with an understanding of we may talk about uncomfy things, but this is the way we deal with them. Like There's processes, you know, it's not safe spaces shouldn't shut down progressive conversation. And if they are, we then should consider if it should exist and if that safe space is a safe space and what that really means, because I know safe spaces are a very popular conversation right now among liberal groups and especially at a time where we're used to seeing identity politics weaponized and there's a lot of trauma dumping and like this is like I feel like a very topical issue especially if you're at a university campus and you have things like women's collectives and like women only groups that sometimes don't include trans women like we come across these issues all the time the idea of exclusion and safe spaces is actually very very common and you're experiencing it every day be it on Facebook or at uni or wherever And so I guess this podcast, the goal of this episode, the aim is to A, make you critical of safe spaces, B, make you recognize when you are potentially yourself being harmful in a safe space or when you are potentially being harmful to others by excluding them from a safe space and C, to figure out how to actually legitimately nurture a space to become potentially safe or safer. Cool. Well, thanks for listening to what? I think maybe the longest episode of Here's the Thing, the podcast. I feel you like say I've been that saying every that. week. I know, and, and each week they're getting a little bit longer. Oh, who knows? Maybe we'll Maybe we'll edit this down. the fuck down. We'll see. I think now's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our lovely, lovely listeners. And specifically, we'd like to thank Sarah Wallace, Kieran, Pia, Johnny, Sarah Calcagno, Liz, Belle, and Katie. If you thought our discussion today was interesting or thought-provoking or something that you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also do one-off donations to our PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Of course, all of those links will be in the description below. You can also check out my Instagram at Saliha Official. Give me a follow if you like today's episode. DM me if you want to talk about today's episode. And you can email us to talk about the episodes as well at here's the thing though podcast at gmail.com. And follow my Instagram at Miscellanea for discussions around film, books and music. 
Cool. Well, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.